Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Gabriel Anderson. He is a managing director at Tachyon, which is an accelerator. It's part of Consensus. Uh, it's an accelerator for early stage blockchain and Web3 startups. Um, and I'm super excited to talk to him. He works closely with Sean Chain, who we just had on the podcast a few episodes ago uh, at Consensus Mesh. They were both also at Vayner together in the past. And so I'm really excited to have Gabe here. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a huge pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, really, really excited to be talking with you and spending the next uh, next hour with you. Awesome. Awesome. So before we dive into Tachyon and everything that's going on over there, I want to know a little bit about your background. So obviously you were at VaynerMedia before this um, and then going, I sort of like went even farther back and dug up your history a little bit more. It looks like you started your career in finance and then sort of got into marketing and through it all, you were very much immersed in entrepreneurship. So tell me a little bit more about your background. Who, who were you before crypto and then how did you get tugged into this crypto world? I'll give you the fast version. Yes, super unconventional path, I think. So I've been an entrepreneur. I started my first company when I was 17. Started a, a webzine company called ocpartyscene.com. I was uh, in college, with two friends. Um, we ended up getting acquired by a company called Lycos back in the days. I think Lycos ended up getting acquired by, by AOL or something like that. I always wanted to get into finance. Finance was kind of like my, my, um, you know, my, my dream job. I, I grew up, uh, you know, lower income family. And so, um, you know, the idea of, of, of breaking into the world of, of finance is really appealing to me. So yeah, I started my, my career career, I guess, at a, at a company called Merrill Lynch, institutional cash management, um, climbed the ranks uh, through that, but became really, really disillusioned. So, you know, here I was 22 or three or something like that. And I had landed my dream job and it wasn't at all what um, what I wanted it to be. So um, I, I left finance, decided to go start what I, what I would call like my real first company. I, I won't take you through the whole path, but it ended up being a failure. Um, from that company, I started uh, my second company, screwed up my cap table. That company ended up folding. Out of the ruins of that company, I started my third company, which got me into prop tech. Um, that, that company is called Real Solutions, Inc., I made the mistake of turning that company into a profitable business. It was a, a you know we were doing six figures in profits. Every VC told me I was I was unbackable. I was hugely depressed. You know I couldn't raise any capital. I I built our business model and and, uh, and our business in a way where I, I just I wasn't a venture scalable. You know at that stage I I'd, I'd uh, been working on building that company for a number of years. And uh, I was just looking for something different. I was spending a lot of time in social media. This is the early days of like Twitter and Facebook. And I was really, really interested in what was happening kind of like at the emergence of technology and uh, some of these social platforms. Anyways, I followed this guy named Gary Vaynerchuk for a long time. And, uh, you know, Gary was building this company called VaynerMedia out in New York. I cold emailed him and I'd, you know, shown him a couple of things I had done in my startup career and um, randomly just flew out to New York to meet with him. 
and decided to to fold my company and, and go work with, with him for a couple of years. So um, I ended up at VaynerMedia. What I thought was going to be a one-year stint <laughs> ended up being six years with Gary. I started out in analytics. Then I built our growth engineering team. Gary was doing a lot of early stage investing back in those days. So I worked with a lot of our early stage companies uh, back then. I kind of turned into EIR uh, within Vayner, Vayner's ecosystem. So I built our media publishing business back then called Vayner Publishing, which today has been gobbled up by a com- company within the Vayner X portfolio called The Gallery. I started our uh, startup media business, which back then was called Vayner Beta, now called the Sasha Group. And so, yeah, after six and a half years, kind of like at the front lines of growth, growth marketing, growth engineering in early stage tech um, in the New York scene, I kind of like done all the things that I wanted to do. I had also kind of played in the underbelly of like social media and marketing and growth. And I, I kind of knew how to, I was the person who was manipulating people in social platforms, right? Like, so when I tell people like why I came to crypto, I came into crypto to wash away my sins. My hands are dirty. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, that, you, that's a new one. I haven't heard that one before. That's a new one. <laughs> it's very, very much my path. Um, you know, I was the person who was gobbling up all of the first party data that all these big platforms, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and and Pinterest, et cetera, were using and using that data to grow startups, grow large companies. Yeah, I was kind of getting tired of that. I I knew how things worked. I was a little disillusioned about what I was doing. And my good friend, Sean Chang, had been at this company called Consensus for a number of years. Um, uh, you know, he was the person that I kind of reached out to. And anytime I want to talk about think like what was happening in this crypto space, I had a finance background back then. This was like 2017. So I'd already come across the Bitcoin white paper and super excited about what was happening with Bitcoin. And then in 2017, all the ICOs were booming. And I was like really skeptical about what was happening in the ICO space. But Sean Chang was the person that I would reach out to and be like, hey, what's happening in this crypto world? And he just took me down the crypto rabbit hole. I mean... Yeah, I was I was flying out to Toronto and uh, he gave me a couple of white papers to read. I think the o- Ocean Protocol was the first white paper I, I read. And I just, for an entire weekend, I could not stop going down the rabbit hole. And so, yeah, uh, Consensus was in the early days of, I think back then, you know, we were incubating a lot of projects, uh, MetaMask and Fura, Gitcoin, uh, Threebox, Decrypt. And they were really looking for somebody to, you know, to come in and really help these companies think about what does it look like to take some of the web two best practices of like how to grow, go to market, um, all the things that I'd been doing previously in both my startups and, and, uh, in web two tech. And so I made the leap when it came to consensus, um, started out, you know, working with our early stage incubation companies before, uh, taking over Tacam, which is our accelerator, which I'm sure we'll get into, but yeah, that's, so that's so super unconventional path, how I ended up in this ecosystem for sure. I love it. I, I love it. I, I feel like honestly, like everybody has a pretty unconventional path ending up in this ecosystem because this is kind of like the wild west right now still, you know, like what would be, what would be a conventional path of ending up here? There really isn't one that I yeah, can think seriously. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but okay, so so you first read the Bitcoin white paper back in 2017. You heard about it. You were super skeptical of everything. What when was it that like a, a flip switched for you and you were like, okay, I get it. I'm buying into it. Um. So I yeah, I'd come across the Bitcoin white paper probably closer to 2016, and then 2017 I was really like I was highly skeptical about what was happening in ICO in 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 what was happening with the ICOs. And the thing that I was worried about was. Um, I believed in, like, I was, I was really excited about blockchain, the technology. I was really concerned that a speculative bubble would, 
would kind of burst and that we would we would lose you know the really interesting aspects of um of more of like distributed ledger technologies it's when i started going down you know very when i started reading various white papers and st starting to you know read about different business models and reading uh you know some of the early blog posts from vitalik and kind of like, like some of the things that he were he was starting to talk about i was reading about what was happening in prediction markets and then a lot of people were talking about like auger and then you know what you could do in you know in, in like completely retooling insurance markets using prediction markets, for example. So I, I was always interested in trying to find those use cases that would actually touch real businesses or introduce new business models. You know, those were early, early days. There were, you know, all those, uh, you know, early white papers that I was reading, it was, it was still very highly experimental. But I could see the, I could see the promise of this technology. And I think that, you know, for me, I, I, at the end of the technology, I'm always looking for the end user and the end market. And I could start to see that there are like real large markets that that these technologies could actually touch and real users and, and consumers, whether they're B2C, B2B, B2D, um, that could really start to open up new possibilities. And it got me really excited. And again, like I was in the underbelly of Web2 uh, tech. Like I, I knew what was happening, um, you know, in, in terms of like how these platforms are utilizing first party data. I knew we needed a different model, a different system. So, yeah. For sure. And nowadays it's, you know, people are, people who are getting into the space today are luckier in the sense that there's a lot more resources for them. So even if they don't have a Sean chain to, you know, onboard them onto <laughs> web three, they have maybe more resources out there. What are some of your favorite resources for learning in th that you've seen in the space today? It can be like blogs, books, podcasts, Twitter people, like anything. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, um, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to miss a bunch of people. Like, I love what Cami Russo has been doing with Defiant. I think she, you know, really made DeFi accessible. I love the Bankless team and crew and what they've been up to. Just tons of smart people, you know, on on Twitter. I mean, the thing about this ecosystem that I'm always amazed uh, with is just how smart everybody is. Um, and just how open with information everybody is. I mean, there, there's, you know, I, there is no shortage of resources or things, you know, in, in, in the Web3 ecosystem in terms of like smart people. So, I mean, just, hell, just looking at my, my Twitter feed, I think, you know, I, I pick up a, a bunch of like really great resources and, and amazing people that, that I think are just doing amazing things. Um, yeah, podcasts like this, like, I, you know, it's just uh, it's so much of this ecosystem is community driven, right? Like it's and there's so much sharing of, of information and knowledge, which I really love. Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. Twitter is one of the the uh, my house. main my main ways of learning <laughs> yeah. about the space. Like, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, yeah, it's a fire hose. It's great. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about Tachyon. Um, I, I think everybody out there has heard of consensus, but maybe not everybody has heard of Tachyon. So tell people a little bit more about what Tachyon is. So Tachyon is, it sits inside of the consensus mesh. We've collectively at this point incubated and invested in north of, at least the, the mesh, uh, north of 100 projects and companies, some of the key pillars in the Ethereum ecosystem, right? So these are companies like Infura and Metamask and Threebox and Pegasus and Truffle and Gitcoin and Decrypt and so many more. Tachyon is our accelerator and uh, it's for the most ambitious early stage Web3 founders. Um, and at this stage, we have, we've launched five cohorts. We've been around since 2017. Uh, we've got over 70 active alumni and we have the pleasure of working with just some phenomenal, you know, web three startups that we met in the early, early days, uh, and helped accelerate them. So companies like Nuo, Idle, Transact, 
um, Outlet, PyDAO, um, Multisafe, Parcel, Valis, so many more. Yeah, very simple. Tachyon, you know, twice a year. So what we do is twice a year, we bring together the most ambitious Web3 founders um, for an intense 12-week sprint to hone their value proposition. So we help them test their assumptions with real customers and prepare them for the next stage of investment and growth, which leads up to what's called a demo day, um, where we help them get ready for, uh, you know, whether it's raising traditional VC capital for that next stage of investment and growth. A lot of our companies end up doing things like launching a token or opening up a DAO and building their community. But whatever that model is, you know, it's, it's really a 12-week sprint um, to really hone and test their business and get them ready for that next stage of growth. Got it. So when companies come to Tachyon, what's the best stage for them to be at? Is it at like right past the ideation phase or like should they have, you know, some sort of like MVP out there? Like what's the best time to go to Tachyon? Yeah. So most of the companies that we work with, at least the ones that we end up accepting into Tachyon, um, a lot of them come out of various hackathons. You know, a lot of companies, a lot of projects started out at a hackathon. They've made multiple iterations. You know, we over-index. I I look for founders who, uh, you know, who are at the stage where they are They've got a working prototype, right? Like I, I want to look at some code or I want to see an early version of a product. It doesn't have to be refined. It doesn't have to be very clear yet, but I want to know that you can build something, right? Um, so a lot of our, uh, a lot of the companies that we end up working with, a, a lot of them are, are like the ETH hackathon winners. You know, they, they've made multiple iterations, you know, kind of working on a proof of concept. Um, I think that's, that's kind of like the first filter The you know, the second thing though, I think, um, just having been a founder myself and, and everybody on the team having been founders, we really over-index on the team. You have to be able to build. We're, we're way past the days of like, you know, getting accepted into Tachyon off of a white paper. I, in fact, there's only one company that I can think of in the last two and a half, three years that came to me with a technical architecture and they had built a previous company before. And so we, we knew that they were builders uh, and all they had was a technical architecture. But for most companies, once you get past that like build stage, you've got a working prototype. Then there's a couple of other filters that we start to look for. And for me, I, I really over-index on the team. Um, you know, is this a team that has domain knowledge? Does the founder have a true north? Um, do they have grit and persistence? Uh, do they have a bias towards action? You know, especially at that zero to one early stage, I think the most important thing is the ability to push through and execute. You know, building a company is very fucking hard. It's probably the hardest thing you, you'll ever do. You know, I, I think those are the two main elements we, we really look for. It's, it's, you know, you've got a working prototype and we really over index on the quality of the team. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of the project itself, do you have any sort of like, maybe in the back of your mind, subconsciously, you're looking for a certain type of project, depending on what's hot in the space right now? Or do you really take on like, all crypto projects, whether it's DeFi, whether it's NFTs, like all across the board? Yeah, great question. So like, let me give you this cohort that we're in the middle of it. We're about halfway through this program. So they started in July, right? We are coming like right up in like this NFT hot season. Um, but for us, we're trying to look forward to what the ecosystem looks like over the next 12 to 18 months. So if you look at the companies, you know, we, we try to envision, you know, what does Web3 look like over the next 12 to 18 months, not, not what's hot right now. So like we have a lot of NFT companies in this cohort, but they're what I would call Gen 2, Gen 3 NFT use cases, right? So kind of past the like aping into, you know, digital assets, unique assets. And what does the next version of NFT look like? Whether that's, you know, um, NFT converging with gaming platforms or NFTs converging with DeFi platforms or um, NFTs that are building portability across the metaverse or, you know, NFTs that are really hacking on 
uh, the programmability of these unique assets in terms of continuing on the um, the user experience. So, you know, we're, we're very open. We work with DeFi companies. Uh, we work with enterprise and infra companies. I've got a couple of those in this current cohort. Um, D- DeFi, NFT, uh, gaming, you know, metaverse, you know, all the, all the aspects that you would think of that are DAOs, you know, treasury management type of tooling, things like that. Um, all the things that are, are typically uh, right now, but we look for like what's right, what's next, what's the next version of what's coming in our ecosystem. And, yeah. and so speaking of that, like, what do you see as like, what are the most important things that need to come next in order to, you know, when we're thinking about ultimately achieving widespread adoption of crypto, what is the next thing that needs to happen? What's the next thing that needs to be built that hasn't been built yet th- that, you know, we really need in order to reach that ultimate goal? Yeah, I think so. What I'm really excited about right now is um, so so two, two is the answer to that question, maybe. I think the, the first is. Um, you know, crypto or Web3, it, it's it's still very hard to onboard into into our ecosystem, right? So the 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 UX and is not co- quite there yet in terms of uh, mass adoption. Um, so like my parents aren't in crypto, you know, my friends who you know have real day jobs or whatever. Like it's hilarious telling what what I do for a living, telling them what I do for a living. By the way, it's like I, I work in magic internet money and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I work with early stage, you know, companies that are kind of building the frontier of future tech. They have no idea what's happening in this space. So, you know, in, in terms of like mass adoption, I think um, there's still a lot that we we need to do in, in terms of abstracting away the complexity in terms of onboarding users into the ecosystem. Um, but in terms of those of us that are already bought into Web3, I think there's some really... Uh, interesting and exciting trends starting to take place. Um, you know, obviously, we were just touching on a couple of them. I think what's happening within the, you know, in, in terms of the convergence, the composability and the convergence of NFTs, DeFi, um, metaverse and portability, like ecosystem development, uh, you know, whether that's DAOs or DAO tooling, like starting to see the convergence of these things start to happen, I think is the really, really interesting. It's the, it's the next level of composability, right? It's beyond composability. It's when these ecosystems now start to converge and you get these new uh, combinatorial connections that you would not have otherwise imagined. That's like the next frontier right now. So like, you know, aping into board apes. That's cool. I love that. Don't get me wrong. I'm super fucking into it. But what happens when you start to hack NFTs in terms of their programmability and think about, you know, unlocking unique experiences in that full consumer journey and what that looks like as a as an N equals one asset, uh, digital native asset. Um, and then what happens if you can create that value via a gaming mechanism and then sell it on an open platform or borrow against it um, at, you know, as you hold it in, in your wallet or stake it as you hold it in your wallet. Like th- this conversion is the convergence is the thing that's starting to get me really exciting, uh, excited right now. Yeah. So anyways, uh, <laughs> I totally, I totally agree with that. It, it's like NFTs on their own are super awesome. DAOs on their own are super awesome, but there's a limitation to what they can accomplish on their own. And if you think about all of these super awesome things joining forces, then like, you know, the sky's the limit there. I'm curious to hear, like, what are some of the coolest projects you've seen so far that have been able to combine different aspects of NFTs, DeFi, DAOs, uh, different aspects of crypto into one. And then also like, uh, if there's any use 
cases you can imagine, you know, that haven't been built yet that you want to see somebody build. Maybe somebody's listening and they're like, I'm ready to build. Just like feed me an idea and I'll do it. (laughs) So um, I'll try not to talk my book too much um, because I think there's some amazing companies in this current cohort that are doing some really next level shit. Uh, in fact, I am going to, I'll probably shout out a couple of them, but if, if, if I'm, if I'm talking beyond, um, like tachyon companies, um, who am I excited about right now? I, I love what the Avogachi team has been doing in terms of like thinking through, you know, the, the convergence of like DeFi and gaming. Um, I, I probably actually put Axie Infinity in that same camp, uh, you know, in terms of like thinking through what does it look like for, you know, play to earn, you know, yielding, uh, you know, true economic value, you know, using these DeFi protocols, but abstracting away, like having to be a yield farmer and just, uh, having the front end interface be kind of like a gaming mechanism. I think that's really, really cool and really exciting. I'm really excited to see what's going to happen um, around portability of NFTs outside of silos into the metaverse. Um, you know, I think Decentraland was kind of like the first, you know, real killer use case. And, and I think that's really interesting in terms of like a platform play. But I want to start to see NFTs have real utility uh, you know, and functions and then be able to interact with other NFTs if we're if we're really going to create this open and interactive metaverse ecosystem, so like there's a company in our current uh, cohort right now called Xerox Essentials. They uh, I love what they're they're trying to do. The the founder there's a there's a guy named Sam. He's got a bias towards action. He spins up proof of concepts all the time. He just launched a project called Wrestlers, which uh, he's spinning up like a um, an NFT wrestling competition to try to see if we can create utility and function across these different NFT. Um, ecosystems using a set of NFT standards to come into a, a metaverse type of environment. I love what they're doing. We've got a company in this current cohort called Nifty Royale that is building like an NFT uh, battle royale gaming platform as a way to increase distribution of, of uh, unique uh, one-of-kind NFTs and kind of like a no-loss gaming type of, um, type of play. I think that's really exciting. I'm really interested to see what happens in terms of like um, like social tokens and social money and starting to unlock new value, uh, you know, like especially as the creator economy start, continues to boom and emerge, um, you know, what are the new funding models that are going to happen with creators? How are they going to utilize whether it's their social money to unlock value for their key stakeholders or their followers? Or, you know, how are they going to think about creating unique experiences using, you know, their their social tokens, uh, either, you know, turning them into, you know, NFTs themselves or then refractionalizing them, you know, and, that, and that's kind of been like a, a really exciting and emerging trend that I've started to see um, happen in the ecosystem. There's so much happening in this space right now. It, it's it, it's a it's a fucking flurry. I mean, it really is. <laughs> there's there's so much happening, and like the thing that I love about it is that just based off of what you said so far, like there were so many aspects of that. There's like the technical challenges of you know how do we bring these NFTs and make them work in Decentraland across all the virtual lands and crypto voxels, you know, instead of like only having like Decentraland NFTs or like crypto voxels NFTs, there's a technical challenge of that. And then with, you know, things like governance and treasury management and things like that in DAOs, like there's another challenge there. And then, you know, there's like also this psychological challenge of like having to think about human psychology and human behavior and behavioral economics and like what motivates people, what incentivizes people. So that that is one thing I really love about this space is I, I think, you know, no matter where you come from, like you can come from a 
you could be a historian, you could be a psychologist, you could be a coder, like no matter what your background is, there is something really interesting and like a really interesting problem for you to solve in this space. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and I think um, all these aspects of the ecosystem create kind of like this gravity swell to what you're just saying of like, where really smart people with different, you know, various domain knowledges can step in and, and start to figure out like, where am I going to, where am I going to participate? How am I going to participate? I think ultimately, um, you know, what I, what I love about the Web3 ecosystem more than anything is you, you find a lot more missionaries than, than mercenaries. Um, you know, people who really believe in trying to you, you utilize this technology and create something really cool and really unique so that we don't go back and create like these individual silos like we like we did in Web2, a Facebook silo, a YouTube silo, a Google silo, an Amazon silo. That's not what I want to see, um, right? I, I want to see a more open, fair, transparent, interoperable world. Yeah, for sure. And there's so much opportunity too in this Web3 world for people to just pitch in and contribute their skills. You know, it's it's so different from the world that we grew up in where it's like you have to have all the credentials in order to, you know, land your dream job at Merrill Lynch, which, you know, <laughs> was like like <laughs> looking back on that is pretty funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so land your dream job there so so that what? So that you can basically be a slave to somebody else and have them tell you exactly what to do and what not to do. Now it's sort of like you go into the ecosystem, you go into these DAOs and you identify the problem and you identify, you know, like what your skill sets are that match up with that problem. And you just go and do it and solve it. And then you can get paid for that. And I think that's, um, that's, you know, just a really exciting structure. And I think that's how we're really going to solve problems super fast. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's crazy. I was at this, um, event here in New York, I think it was put on by, um, open law, where a bunch of people from DAOs had showed up and I was talking to a bunch of people who had just recently aped into a number of these DAOs. And, you know, you're just talking about like the human psychology behavior, like the main driving thing here is one, you, there's a sense of agency, right? So I can kind of dictate, you know, and, and create value, step in and create value where I see value that can be created. And then two, I get to participate in a portion of the upside of the value that I create. Like you don't have to overthink this, right? Like you, you it's, and this is the thing that I, I loved about this reminds me of the early days of Web3 of what got me so excited is ultimately these are these are incentive and coordination problems that we are solving. And that's kind of like anytime I get lost in the sauce a little bit about like what we're doing, I always go back to the first principles. Like that's ultimately what I think we're trying to build around the Web3 ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if you know Matt Stevenson. I had him on the podcast mm, no. recently. Too. He's a he's a PhD behavioral economics um, person and he thinks about he's like has done so much research on like Matt incentive Stevenson? problem. Yeah, I can connect to you after this, but he's done so much research and thinking on like incentive coordinate coordination problems and what incentivizes people, you know, they're like the social incentives versus the financial incentives and balancing that out. And I just think all of that is super fascinating. And um, it's it's something. Yeah, I, I think when people think about the space, still, they still think of like a bunch of finance bros or like, you know, coder coders and things like that. And there is such a bigger human component to it than most people have any idea that there is. And so I, I think that's super exciting. Something else I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned a, a lot earlier and, you know, based on your background with uh, startups and being an entrepreneurship basically your whole life, what are some 
Web two best practices for creating a startup that we can apply to Web three. Oh, I'm really glad you asked that question. Yeah, um, Tachyon was sitting inside of the mesh. Uh, for, we'd run, run two cohorts before I took over. I, I took over in 2019 and rebuilt the the business really from the ground up. Ultimately, the mission and vision of Tachyon is you know we believe that Web three will be synonymous with the internet in the next ten years. And what we want to do is we want to find and accelerate and help support the future founders of that world. When I set out to redesign Tachyon, you know, from the ground up, what we asked ourselves is what does a native Web3 accelerator look like and how do we 10x our, our impact? Um, and so a lot of that was going back to first principles. You know, first of all, Tachyon was built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. We, we have been founders. We have been in the trenches. Our advice is not based on some theoretical bullshit or some blog or some theory. We are in the trenches uh, with our founders um, and we've been there. I think there's this tendency with people who have not built companies previously who are coming into Web3 to maybe like want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I think there's some really, really good first principles um, that you can borrow from Web 2 and then layer in the nuances of Web of Web 3. So when I think about the, the best practices, the fundamentals of building a high growth startup, a venture backable startup, it starts with what we like to call the lockbox. Um, and the lockbox for, for us is simply, you know, you start with, you know, some people call it problem solution fit, um, different than problem market fit, but it's, you know, you start with identifying a problem. Um, you know, where a set of users or customers, there's something that they are trying to accomplish. And a good problem has both an insight and intensity. So what does that mean? Like, you know, you want to identify, like, what's the problem that your particular users have? Who has this problem? How often do they have the problem? Um, how painful is it? What's your insight into your users or your customers, what they're trying to achieve and, and, and how intense is, uh, is that problem? I think once you hone in on a really good problem, the second key component is um, operating in a good market. So VCs will talk about like how big is your market, the size of your market. And a Web3 is not a big market right now. Um, but I think there are, are, you know, really some key components to operating in a good market, which is, you know, what's the size of that market? How fast is it growing? You can either get a small piece of a really big multi-billion dollar, you know, market. So DeFi is operating obviously, you know, in, you know, trillion dollar marketplaces. And so while the DeFi ecosystem, it's total TAM, total addressable market might not be huge yet. It's racing towards a really big market. Uh, that's a big market, right? But the other way that you can go is you can try to get, um, high penetration into a small but really fast growing. So the size of the market is, is changing really, really fast because there are some, some key shifts and trends that are driving growth. So like DAOs, for example, right? Like two years ago, I mean, if you looked at the size of DAOs, you know, and, and, and the size of like treasuries, uh, within DAOs, for example, I don't know, a couple million. Now you're talking about like, you know, s orders of magnitude larger than that. That is a, uh, that's a, a fast and large growing market. And then the third component to the, the lockbox. So, a good, you know, having a good problem, which has insight and, and intensity, a good market. And then the third thing is um, a differentiated solution. You operate in a marketplace. And so, you know, do you have a unique advantage? Um, do you have a unique insight into the needs of your users and your customers and what their options are um, within the marketplace? Is it differentiated? Can you easily create value, um, you know, for for the for the market? And so, you know, a lot of founders, especially when you come out of when when we come out of uh, 
hackathons, we kind of fall in love with the technology. And especially if you're if you're a founder who's kind of building for your own thing, right? Like the, the N equals one first business, you know, that you bootstrap, that's fine to get you going. But the difference between a project and a startup is a customer. It's a user and a set of users. And so you ultimately go from building for yourself to building for other people. Those are like really solid fundamentals in terms of like getting going from zero to one. Um, and then, and then from there, it's, it's the good old fundamentals of like starting to demonstrate traction, improve demand. You know, what does your go to market look like? And I think this is where you can start to get into some, some nuances around web three that are different and differentiated than, you know, what I would call legacy tech. And I think that's really what separates Tachyon from like a YC, for example. I think, you know, while we respect, you know, like a Y Combinator and what they've done, I think, you know, they've done what they've done in legacy tech world. And we're we're building a, a pure Web3 experience for what we think, you know, and accelerate for what we think Web3 looks like. And so, you know, as as startups start going through proving demand and getting traction, because ultimately you're, you know, you're a high growth startup, you need to prove that demand. You know, there's a whole playbook around how you should think about going to market, starting to think about your customer segments. Who are you serving? Um, how are you s- serving them? What's your unique value proposition? You know, what's that customer experience? All start every startup. Every startup competes on the same attack vectors, which are price, quality, delivery, and customization. And so you need to think about what your differentiated solution is in market. You know, what's your channel strategy? Do you have intermediaries in them? What's your business model? What's your revenue model? And then as you start layering on the Web3 uniqueness, I think that the two killer features of Web3 in terms of uh, uniqueness and in growing a high growth startup are uh, composability and community. I have a blog post that's kind of like sitting in the drafts that I need to get out the door at some point. But um, I think composability and, com- and community are probably the two strongest moats for Web3 companies, especially as they think about proving traction and, and going to market. And we spend a lot of time with our founders in thinking through those those key elements as they as they begin to prove demand. But it kind of starts with the bedrock of like, what are the fundamentals of building high growth startups. For sure. Yeah. I want to dive into both of those things because we are talking about Web3 startups here and, and composability and community, I think, are a lot are two of the things that a lot of people listening are thinking about. Uh, but one quick question with when you think about like the total addressable market for, you know, say like a consumer facing product in the Web3 ecosystem, are you looking at that as you know, like people who are in the crypto space right now, or are you looking at that as like everybody? Because like you said, you know, Web3 is going to be the internet in 10 years. And so in that sense, it's like the total addressable market is, is that everybody that's like using the internet today? Or are you only looking at, you know, people in the crypto space? Yeah. So in the beginning, all startups need to get uh, much more specific and much more niche, get small to get big. So I want to be able to see that you can level up into a very large market that's going to become a massive market because that's how you're going to become a large business. But we can't start you there, right? Like I need you, I want you to tell me about a specific user, a specific customer, right? Like, um, you know, uh, Huddle01 in our last cohort had a specific user. They they are building decentralized video conferencing solutions in emerging markets for users that are in the ad tech space. That's a very specific user, right? So they're competing against Zoom, Google Meet. That's a huge TAM. Like I can see where that's going to go. But they're starting with ad tech in the Southeast Asian marketplace. Um, and so for every good startup, you want to start with your, your beach 
beachhead, your initial go-to-market, which is your serviceable, obtainable market, your SOM. It's a, it's usually a very specific set of users that you can build a solution around who are going to be very excited and enthusiastic about you know the problem that you're solving for them. And then your your objective is is to create raving fans within your initial SOM, get high market penetration, and then level that up into your SAM, was which is the the serviceable uh, obtainable market, a serviceable addressable market. And that's kind of like the next layer, right? So like if we, if we're if I'm looking at Huddle One, now they're gonna move from you know ed tech to um, freelance workers in the Southeast Asian marketplace, right? And so eventually they're going to level themselves up into a much larger ecosystem TAM, but it's got to, you start really specific. You start really small with, with that initial addressable market, that beachhead. And it's very hard to do because we all have, you know, illusions of grandeur of, of like be building these massive businesses. Uh, but if you can obsess about, you know, that the, the first, the first 10 customers, the first 100 users, are like, they're the best. For every startup, they are the best. And if you can obsess about those and build something that the first 100 people will love, um, I think you've, you've, got, you've got the beginnings of, of potentially a great company. So that's how I, that's how I think about the TAM. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Um, so I want to talk about the composability and the community. So, you know, I think those are two things that you probably should start thinking about from day one as well. Like even getting those first 100 users, you got to think about like, how do I get the most loyal and dedicated first 100 users? And a lot of that is, you know, how you think about community building. I'd love to hear your take on each of those things and best practices for building that, like how it's different you know, focusing on those things in Web3 versus Web2. Like, obviously, community is important in Web2 as well, but much more so in Web3 and maybe in a slightly different way. Yeah, so so, so I think the big difference is, is that, um, at, at least in, in my opinion, is so much about Web2 is, um, like, I think about the, the early days of, like, Twitter and how they opened up their APIs. And then, you know, the, the Twitter slap came down on developers and they started, you know, taking away API access um, because they, they went from, you know, building their community, open sourcing everything. And then it everything became, became about uh, value capture. And the difference between, I think, Web2 and Web3 is so much of our ecosystem was built around open source technology in the beginning, right? We're going back to, you know, web, really web one, the, the fundamentals of how, how the internet was, was originally built based off of protocols. And so composability is simply, you know, figuring out ways that your product can fit in the stack. And, um, what we've seen time and time again is, is that if, if early web three companies lean into composability, open sourcing, uh, you know, early versions of their product, trying to become composable, trying to become key pieces of the stack, that becomes a, d- a defensible moat, uh, because now they are an essential part of a larger and growing ecosystem. Um, that's very much connected to the community building. And so a lot of our emphasis and and focus with our early stage companies is building in public, like starting with, you know, find the first 10 users or 10 customers, figure out what they want to have built and, and build a community around them. So much of what our, our founders end up building um, will end up being community driven where, you know, essentially your first customers are also your first couple of investors. They are, you know, they become incentivized to it's spread, you know, via word of mouth. Um, it, it, it becomes so much of a uh, of an exponential growth trend if you can start to hack that from the very beginning. 
it naturally fits within the ethos of Web3 anyways. Anytime I have this conversation with uh, especially our venture partners uh, who, are, who, are, who are either um, not you know pure crypto venture or uh, they have an investment thesis around crypto, they're, they're making kind of their entryway into crypto. They always ask me like, how are you thinking about, you know, what's this thing with composability? How are you thinking about value capture with your companies? And we kind of have to educate them a little bit. Um, you know, composability and open source and building strong communities and opening up, you know, the technology is a, it's a defensible moat in Web3. And that's the, the way you need to kind of think about it. And then with community too, there's, you know, I'm in so many discords and some of the communities there are so much stronger than others. And uh, <laughs> it's, there's, you know, it's, it's all across the board, but I think it's like, if you had to sort of, you know, find the patterns and summarize it, what are the things that those strong communities are doing that the weaker communities are, are missing? Man, uh, it's the vibes, right? It's the culture. Like they, I think the the really great communities. Um, I think about like Peter Pan, you know, now at One KX, you know, previously Meta Cartel, you have OG in the ecosystem, right? Like so much of the early days of like the Meta Meta Cartel squad or the uh, Raid Guild squad was just like. If, if even one person was excited about what was happening, like they brought that person into the fold, they nurtured that person, you know, they brought them into the culture. Um, you know, I, we try to do the same thing with Tachyon, all of our founders, all of our alumni, all of our mentors and advisors, you know, we want them to feel the vibes. We want them to feel like they are part of something. We want them to feel nurtured. We want them to feel like, you know, they are part of something bigger than themselves. Um, you know, so much of the community is, there are the the extrinsic motivations, right? So like when you join a DAO, when you join a community, there there can be tokens, there can be financial incentives. You know, those are the, the extrinsic uh, motivators. But I, I think so much more is the intrinsic motivation. Um, I think we live in a day and an age where people want to be a part of something. They want to be connected to something, especially, you know, coming out of this crazy, weird COVID world that we just came out of. You know, not to get too philosophical here, but like we want to be connected. People need people. We want to be connected to one another. And so much of this we can, you know, so much of this ecosystem can be about um, being connected with one another and being a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And I think that's what people are looking for. I think I think that's why this is so exciting and such an exciting time right now within Web3. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Do you recommend the companies that you work with at Tachyon, like if they don't already have a community manager, is that sort of a priority for them to get a community manager? Uh, right no, I no, no, I tell all of our founders, like hand-to-hand -hand combat, you like until you are broken and you cannot engage with your community yourself, do not go out and hire a community manager. Like understand who your community is, do not try to outsource that. Too, I think too many, especially technical founders, want to try to outsource that. I think that's a terrible idea. I'm active as the managing director. I'm active in our alumni Slack and our mentor and advisor Slack, and it, you know, and in our uh, tech and Discord channels. Um, until you cannot do it anymore, I think um, you should stay very, very, very connected to your community. It is that important. And if you are trying to build a community and it's just not happening. First, go be a part of other people's communities um, and, and go be a good participant and try to add value to other ecosystems and other communities, you know, and people will get turned on to what you're what you're doing and what you're building, and what you're about. And they'll slowly start to join your Discord or your Telegram or your Slack. I think it's a terrible idea for founders to try to outsource community management to somebody else in the beginning, like 
that's your community. That is, they are there for you. They're there for your vibes. You set the precedence. You show them uh, what the culture is within your community. Like you should be in control of that. I think that's a really important point. And some might think that's a hot take. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a really good point. Last question before we dive into your tweets. Uh, oh, shit. And your <laughs> this part always gets people nervous. I'm not sure why. You tweeted it. Like, you should feel good about, you know, what you've said. But, I stand by uh, it. <laughs> last question. Um, in your perfect world, like, if everything progresses as planned, where will we be in 10 years with, I don't even want to say with crypto, because, like, Web3 is just going to be daily life, you know? Um. Yeah, that's a great question. So, I, I hope... I can't even imagine it, right? Like I think about, um, I think it was Walt Disney who said, I, I might be misquoting, but I, I believe it was Walt Disney who said, I don't know the future is, but it's bright and it's shiny and it's somewhere out there. Like I fucking love that quote, right? And I, I live my life that way. Um, I hope crypto and Web3 is that way. I just, I hope it's just, I, I just hope it's bright and it's shiny and it's exciting and and it, I get surprised and shocked by it positively in ways that I cannot even imagine right now. Um, that's what I hope. I hope we're not all aping into speculative NFT. I, I hope we move past that part. I, uh, and again, not to shit on anybody's NFT. I love all of your NFTs. You know, I shill all of you. I love it. But like, I want to see what's next. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I need to stop. I need to stop wasting time aping into all these NFT avatars and like do something legit. I <laughs> uh, love it. All right, okay. So it's it's time for some tweets. Oh um, shit! All right. <laughs> let's start with this one from April seventh, twenty twenty one. You said fractionalized NFTs being transacted with social money as access to community slash personalities that transact on L2 rails is going to open up some of the most exciting new biz models civilization has ever seen. It's culture hacking 2.0. Okay, so there's like a ton of words here. I don't even know if people understood what I just said, but can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, so this is what we were talking about earlier, which is th this is kind of like an early uh, thread or idea that I, I was thinking of, of like not just composability, but con convergence. So one, one of the reasons why I think NFTs um, became so hot is because it it's what I call culture hacking, right? It's It was accessible by mainstream. Mainstream for the first time could look at a crypto related project and say, oh, I know that. I know what that means. And it and it has to do with what's happening in culture. It has to do what's happening in, in, in the zeitgeist. And so um, as I start thinking about you know, the combination, the combinatorial convergence of things like social money and personalities now being able to tokenize themselves. And then as soon as, you know, these layer two rails start coming that make transactions, the, the, the output of transactions much faster. And then you can start unlocking the value of these personalities that are attached to these, you know, uh, these tokens, you know, via n equals one experiences through DeFi type of of platforms, like that becomes really, really interesting and really, really exciting. As you start thinking about how how creators are going to use that, how the creator economy is going to use those tools, um, you know, as soon as you introduce new tool sets to creators, you get all kinds of really cool, amazing fucking things that come about. And so that's what I was trying to say is is like. 
you you can't even begin to imagine what that world is going to look like, but you're, you're going to have all of these creators that are, that are going to have access to these tools that are going to figure out new ways of, of gaining access and value uh, not only to their communities, but where their communities gained access to them as well. And I think it's going to be really exciting. For sure. Yeah, that I, I can't wait for all of that to happen and to, to see it just play out. All right. So this yeah. next tweet I've got, this is from July 13th, 2021. You said, just met a bunch of dope folks wor- working for and excited about DAOs. No yeah, way yeah. traditional companies survive. Yeah. Uh, hot take. I didn't look in the comments, but did people come at you for this? And do you do you really believe that like DAOs are going to fully replace traditional companies in the I, future? They'll... they'll, they'll they will happen side by side for, I think, a very long time. But again, um, you know, so much of legacy company organizations are hierarchical and they are top down. And what I, what I think the, the magic of where I think, um, you know, Dallas really plays into is it, it, again, it's, it's agency and it's upside. And, you know, abstracting away all the coordination components uh, and making it very easy for people to come together and, and coordinate with one another and having the incentive mechanisms that's li- that are layered on top, I think just creates the type of speed, the feedback loop, the cycle um, that becomes very, very hard to compete against. And I, I think, you know, you'll have some pretty, you know, pretty fast moving companies in, in, in legacy organizations that will figure out how to disrupt themselves and try to keep up at this pace. Uh, but I think you're going to see an, uh, just a Cambrian explosion of DAOs and communities um, that, you know, that, that can utilize these tool sets as they think about like both the, the coordination and the incentive mechanisms. I think that's really kind of the, the magic of, uh, of DAOs right now. Yeah, 100%. I think there's a lot that legacy organizations can learn from DAOs on. And I, I think, you know, if they can le- really learn from the DAOs and incorporate those practices into their systems, they can survive and we can we can have... You I, but know, I'm, embarrassed, I'm embarrassed on that because for most legacy organizations, it's not in their DNA. It just it does it just isn't. It's the it's the innovators dilemma, right? It's not in their DNA. And so, it, you know, I had a fantastic mentor back in the days who told me, Gabriel... Uh, there are two paths to enlightenment, the path of pleasure and the path of pain. Both will get you there. Um, I think you're going to have a lot of legacy organizations that are going to go through the path of pain. And I just don't think they're going to be able to disrupt themselves. Oh, you're, you're right. I was trying to stay positive, but yeah, yeah you're, you're probably right. <laughs> okay. And then I've got one more tweet for you. This is from August 3rd. So just two days ago, um, you said, and th- this is non-crypto related, and this is really like a selfish one to pull out because I, I want to know how you resolve this. But you said, I just cleared out 3.5 weeks of email replies. If I was behind on getting back to you, I'm sorry. Doing the best I can. Need better systems. So I've got... 200 yeah 250 unread emails and my my work one and then my personal email is like hopeless i've already given up on that did you find an what's the solution i need help with emails i have tried it all superhuman isn't it let me just tell you that i've tried that uh you know hotkeys isn't it i've declared email bankruptcy five times in the last six years i don't know I don't know how to, I don't have a good answer for you. Like between the emails, the slacks, the telegrams, the discords, I'm getting murdered. I'm absolutely getting murdered. Like somebody needs to figure, we have, we actually have a company in this cohort called the Convo Space that I'm really excited about that's building composable conversations in a decentralized manner. Um, the, the main reason we invested in 
them is because I want this. I want the solution that he's building. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. It, you know, it, I, I feel terrible that I you know, it took me that long to get back to people. If I owed you an email publicly here on the podcast, the Unstoppable Podcast, I apologize. Um, I'm doing the absolute best I can. I promise I will get back to you eventually. Uh, thank you for your patience. <laughs> There you go, everybody. You've got a public apology from Gabriel on the Unstoppable podcast. Um, Yeah, well, if you find a solution, definitely hit me up because I think this is like the thing I'm worst at in my job is emails. And this is unfortunately a part of every job that you will ever have in life. So I I feel like I need to figure out a solution to this. Yeah, short of being able to clone ourselves, uh, you know, I don't know that that we're going to have a great solution anytime soon, but uh, I'll let you know if I find something. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, Gabriel, to come on the podcast today. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, and then where they can go to uh, apply for the next cohort of Tachyon if somebody's got a great idea or just learn more about it or, you know, anything Tachyon's got planned coming up in the near future. Feel free to plug all of that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, um, yeah, hit me up on Twitter, uh, Gabriel Anderso, no N. I thought it was funny and cute back in the days, but now it seems, seems like a terrible idea. But Gabriel Anderso, um, if you want to uh, apply to Tachyon or learn more about Tachyon, you can find us at mesh.xyz slash Tachyon. T-A-C-H-Y-O-N. Um, we've got Demo Day coming up with this uh, cohort. Um, you can go to mesh.xyz slash Tachyon to find out more and sign up to get an invite to Demo Day. Um, that's coming up September 17th. We'll probably be doing a closed-door private invite uh, investor day uh, on September 10th, uh, right before that. Or just send me an email. You, I, I, I just said don't, three, don't send him three, an email. I Why know did you say I'm that? three and a half weeks behind, but I promise you I will get back to you. It might be a while, but uh, gabriel.anderson at mesh.xyz is how you can get a hold of me via email if you want to reach me that way too. I feel like that's so, a bad idea just for anybody yeah, listening. Probably bring, shoot him a DM or something. <laughs> <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Gabriel. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.